So, folks, if you're just joining us, of course, this is Night Fright. We're live tonight, of course. We're going across the Atlantic all the way to Spain, and we're going to be speaking with Robert Boval. Tonight, we're going to be talking about his book, The Egypt Code. Oh, yeah, Egypt, folks. You know, when I was driving in tonight, it was pouring rain, it was cold, it was damp. Tonight is the perfect night for you to settle back in your favorite chair, get that comforter up and over you, get the coffee going, settle in, ease up on the gas pedal if you're in your car or truck. Just relax, take it easy, no sense having an accident, because we're going to entertain you tonight and we're going to educate you. We're going to educate you about the mysteries, those ancient mysteries that have surrounded Egypt. There are many mysteries surrounding Giza, where the pyramids are. There are many mysteries surrounding Memphis, what happened to it. Was it indeed swallowed by the earth? There are many mysteries surrounding Alexandria, what happened to that magnificent library that was there. All these mysteries and more our guests tonight just may have the answers for. Tonight on Night Fright, it's Egypt unveiled. Tonight on Night Fright, we look at all those mysteries unveiled. Tonight on Night Fright, our guest Robert Bouval joins us. The Egypt Code. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Tonight Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, of course, this is Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. I want to say a special hello to our co-host tonight, as always, Joel Lashano is in the studio. Just let me tell you about Joel real quick. This show was on the ropes. This show was on the rocks. It was dying. It was just too much for me to do by myself. Joel came along. He stepped up to the plate, and he is now managing and become the man, the contact man, in order for people to contact to come on this show. And believe me, that is a monumental task in itself. And he's doing an amazing job. Case in point, our guest tonight, Mr. Robert Bouval, all the way from Spain. How great is that? Right here on Night Fright. This ain't the CBC, folks. This isn't the CBC with millions of dollars of budget. Uh Uh-uh. I'm on the phone right now using something called Gizmo out of my own pocket to connect with him. Yeah. And we're doing it, baby. This is the number one Canadian show of its genre across the world. How great is that? And that's because of you, the listeners, right here on www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Folks, if you're just joining us, our guest tonight is Robert Bouval on the phone live from Spain. Whereabouts in Spain are you, Robert? I am on the Costa del Sol in the extreme south of Spain, just outside Malaga. Beautiful. And it's 4 a.m. 
I'm sorry about that. Let's talk about your new book, The Egypt Code. First of all, can you give all our listeners a brief synopsis about your book? The book is about essentially about the notion that there is a sky-ground correlation between the whole Nile Valley, the placing of monuments, pyramids, and temples in correlation with the, with the sky. It stems from an earlier book that I did in 1994, showed that there was a correlation between the pyramids of Giza, the three pyramids of Giza, and the constellation of Orion, or more precisely the belt stars of Orion, three stars. The uh, pyramids of Giza, three pyramids, are laid out each of them individually, astronomically. For example, the Great Pyramid, which uh, has a square base, is aligned to the cardinal direction in an extremely precise manner. All pyramids are, have a, quite a high precision of, of uh, astronomical alignment. Now, the three pyramids are laid collectively in such a way that the first two, which are the largest, are on a 45-degree diagonal to the Nile. There's a line that passes through their square base along the diagonal, whereas the third pyramid is much smaller and offset from that diagonal. This, it's been like this for 5,000 years, but for some extraordinary reason, nobody paid attention to this strange anomalistic payout. So uh, this uh, anomalistic plan, as, as I called it, I noticed it in uh, 1983, it was. For some reason, it wasn't picked up, although it was always there. In those days, we didn't have Google Earth and easy access to satellite photographs and so forth. I noticed this, this anomalistic plan on a photograph in the Cairo Museum. At the time, I was working in Saudi Arabia as a construction engineer. It just stuck in my mind. Now, I should give a brief background of myself. I was born in Egypt, grew up there as a, as a child and a teenager. So I had seen the pyramids as a child, and of course I had sort of a healthy interest in them, but nothing more than that. The thought st stuck in my mind because it was clear to me that I was looking at a, um, at a plan. Three monuments of the same uh, design, of the same geometrical design, set on this, on, uh, near to each other. And yet, there didn't seem to be any logic to the plan. It was also clear to me that if there was an explanation to that, it had to be in the context of the builders themselves, their, their ideologies, what they believe. Now, the monuments are intensely religious, and the, the orthodox view was that they were built by uh, kings of the fourth dynasty, that they uh, served as tombs for these kings, three kings being uh, King Cheops, or Khufu built the Great Pyramid, King Khafra II, and Menkara. They're, they're, they're three generations, father, son, grandson. So here we had a, uh, a pan-generation plan built by the same dynastic people on the same sites uh, with the same geometrical uh, shapes. And yet it didn't make sense because one would have expected either three pyramids to be in all in a diagonal or three of the same size or having this offset of the third one and its smaller size just didn't make sense to me. And I looked for the explanation. I, I thought, well, okay, well, where did they write about this? Now, one of the peculiarities, at this point, what was extremely puzzling was that there are absolutely no inscriptions uh, inside or outside these monuments, which adds to the great mystery of these, uh, of these structures. I mean, uh, not, not only their incredible size and, and precision of alignment, but there is no writing whatsoever. 
totally puzzling. To me, uh, the, the mystery began to grow and grow, and uh, this strange plan stuck in my mind, and I became kind of obsessed to try and solve this mystery. It so happened that I had a friend who was a navigator. It's one of those strange moments in my life where we, in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, we were uh, once camping, and he pointed at these particular stars to me. They're used by navigators quite extensively because they rise due east. It's very easy to pick them uh, in the sky. And uh, do you notice uh, how they're in alignment? And then as an afterthought, he said the third one is smaller and offset to the left. And suddenly the page dropped in my mind because uh, I was looking at what appeared to be a kind of stellar uh, representation of the three pyramids on the ground. What clinched it for me was that when I realized that there was, in fact, texts written by the pyramid builders, but not in these pyramids, in the pyramids that uh, immediately followed the fifth dynasty. I should give a few dates here. The, the fourth dynasty is supposed to have taken place in 2500 BC. A uh, hundred years later or so was the fifth dynasty. And in the fifth dynasty pyramids, which are much smaller, not very far away from the, the Great Pyramids of Giza, are inscribed the so-called pyramid texts. Uh, in contrast to their uh, predecessors, these small pyramids are full of texts. And in these texts, describes, of course, the ideologies of the builders, and essentially they're a kind of magical text to have the Pharaoh resurrect. And it's very clear as you flutter through those texts that the intention of the king is to somehow make his way to the stars. And they give a very specific location for his afterlife destiny. And lo and behold, it's supposed to be this constellation of Orion. So here we had a uh, textual support for what I was looking at. I plucked a bit of courage and I wrote to a few Egyptologists, uh, particularly uh, the late Professor Edwards, who was the authority on, on pyramid studies and curator of the British Museum. Not only he was uh, rather impressed with this idea, but he let me know that there was a shaft within the Great Pyramid that actually pointed at the time of construction to Orion's belt. So to me, that was it. That was the clincher. What, what added further to this was that the position of the pyramids on the ground relative to the, to the Nile are also almost precisely the same way as the stars of Orion's belt are to the Nile. So you, you had a kind of sky map that matched the ground map in the region of Giza. This became known as, to cut a long story short, and I have time to discuss, a bit more on. I eventually published this in a um, in a professional article, and in '94 I published a book called *The Orion Mystery*. By the time I published the book, it was picked up by the BBC, and they made a major documentary, which was shown on the day of the launch of the book, and it kind of launched this theory, uh, literally sky high. It became known as the Orion Correlation Theory. It's a, it's a theory that has has rocked the academic establishment quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's highly debated, very much embraced by the public. I think in the uh, several of my shows were probably shown on, on Canadian televisions. It has been the subject of about ooh, 15 or 20 documentaries since its publication. Uh, I have actually the, seen one, uh, Robert, so you have, I, have I know exactly what you're talking about. And yes, it was, it was a BBC documentary. It was mm -hmm. an ABC special it, it was broadcasted on History Channel. I, I've lost count. 
the book that I've written is now in about 30 languages. Uh, it's one of those theories that has grabbed the imagination of the public simply because it's, it's so obvious when, once you see that correlation. And yet the strange thing about it is that it, didn't, it hadn't pick, picked up by, through the centuries. It's one of those strange things. It's once you see this in, in photographic uh, comparison, it's very, very striking. So the, the basis of my work is this correlation theory. Uh, however, to answer your original question, and I'll be very brief now, what was always thrown at this theory is, well, fine, what about the other monuments? What about the rest of Egypt? Is there a similar ideology that was applied across the board? Now, Egypt is a, is a country that is a civilization that lasted for 3,000 years, and there are monuments that are spread all along the course of the Nile, uh, starting from Cairo region all the way to the extreme south in uh, Abu Simbel. It's about 1,000 kilometers of, of Nile Valley. We know that there existed some 3,000 temples that were, uh, were, were scattered all along the Nile Valley. Most of them have disappeared, but uh, we still have quite, quite a lot of temples that are still uh, standing. By the way, Egypt contains something like 75% of the world archaeology, so you can imagine the extensive ancient sites that still exist there. Th that was the main contention is, uh, well, what about other bodies? What about the Sphinx, for example, which is also near the pyramids? It's linked to the pyramid uh, complex. Uh, this was followed, by the way, by a book that I wrote with a, with a author whom you might have heard as well, uh, a gentleman called Graham Hancock. Oh, of course. Sure. Very popular in, in Canada mm -hmm. with his uh, famous book, Thing Prince of the God, where Graham and I got together in, uh, in 95 and we published a book called Keeper of Genesis, which I think in Canada was uh, titled Message of the Sphinx. And in this uh, book, we not only show that the Sphinx is also part of the Giza plan, the three pyramid plan, but we show that the whole complex, i.e. the pyramids, including the Sphinx, correlated to the, the, the region of Orion and the constellation of Leo at a time which infuriated even more the academics because the time that this correlation takes place was long before they accepted the accepted date of the beginning of Egyptian civilization. The time that we, we extracted from the analysis of the uh, astronomical correlation was 10,500 BC, which takes us back some 8,000 years before established views in, in, in the That's academic right. world. Yeah, most academics but, think, uh, think that the Egyptian civilization, folks, only goes back to 5,000 years. Indeed, and that caused one hell of a... I mean, it wasn't bad I enough. Because <laughs> you're more than doubling the accepted time. We, we, we had just about every archaeologist and philologist and anthropologist and Egyptologist and just about every ist you can imagine so it was up in arms saying this is not possible. Well, they might not have liked it, but the evidence is overwhelming. The reason this, this reaction was so violent is that not only it had escaped the attention of, of the specialists working in the field, but the reason it probably escaped their attention is that they weren't using astronomy. Astronomy was rather uh, an unknown tool in the toolkit of archaeologists. It's become now rather popular, but in the days where we were coming out with these theories, which is very surprising when one thinks of it, because not only the monuments are, are all pyramids, like I described earlier, are intensely astronomical. They're aligned themselves astronomically on the 
ground, they have shafts and corridors that are aligned to stellar uh, systems and, and so forth. But many of the temples, in fact, I, I believe all the temples in, in uh, Egypt are astronomically aligned either towards the sun or to star constellations. Really? Wow. Yes, this is, this is well known now. And uh, it had been known before, I mean, before I came on the scene, which makes it very, very puzzling, let alone that the texts are intensely astronomical as well. I mean, the pyramid texts are, I suppose one could describe them as archaic astronomy. They're extremely metaphorical, of course. But Just uh, let me but... interrupt you for a second here, Robert, because I want to tell folks who were speaking with You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Robert Bouval live on the phone from Spain, and he is being wonderful because it is now 4.35.37 in Spain. It's the middle of the night for him, even though it's right now it's only 10.30, 10.37 here in eastern Canada. We're talking about his book, The Egypt Code. Now, The Egypt Code, folks, states very clearly that the pyramids were made to align with star clusters inside the Orion constellation which makes perfect sense. And we're going to go into some details now. I just wanted to let you know where you can get his book. Easy way as always, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover associated with Robert Bouval's name. That will take you right to a place where you can order the book online from the comfort of your own home. And we're talking about the mysteries tonight, folks, surrounding Egypt. One of the questions I have for you right away, Robert, you had mentioned... The three small pyramids. Now, they are step pyramids just outside of the traditional large three pyramids we see in Giza. There's three smaller ones, folks, kind of behind. They're step pyramids. Is there a reason why these were made into step pyramids as opposed to the larger ones, which are perfectly smooth? You're talking about the uh, smaller pyramids on the Giza site? Yes, sir. There is? Yes, sir. Yes. There is, there, there is in fact, six of them. Oh, there's six. Uh, okay. And and very often you read in the Egyptological books that there are nine pyramids at Giza on account of the fact that there are the three uh, royal pyramids, the three great pyramids, these six smaller pyramids, much smaller pyramids, which are normally attributed to queens. Comparing these pyramids to the great pyramids that stand on this site is a bit like comparing a three-story house to the Empire State Building. The scale is totally different, and of course you just mentioned that they are built in stepped form. I think it's important for people who are interested in this, this kind of research to realize that the uh, three Giza pyramids stand not just alone because of their, of their size and their precision, but because they belong to a dynastic or, or a family, the kind of family project, if you like. There are indeed much more pyramids than, than these in, in the Cairo region, west of the Nile. We call the area the Memphite Necropolis. The Memphite Necropolis, or the, the pyramid fields, to speak to in, in more common terms. There are about seven pyramid fields. They, they run for about 60 kilometers. They're scattered like, like archipelagos, I call them, like islands, if you like, on a sea of sands. 
that they sort of stick out in clusters. So out of these in the Malphite necropolis, there are approximately 25 royal pyramids. The earliest one, indeed the very first pyramid, is a step pyramid. The term pyramid is, is wrong here because step pyramid cannot be a pyramid. The, the definition of a pyramid is a, is a geometrical shape. Like most people imagine it, it's a, it's a smooth five-cornered five shape. And a regular pyramid has an angle of 52 degrees, which is this, the case of, of the Giza pyramid. The Giza pyramids are regular pyramids. They're absolutely true pyramids. Step pyramids usually have seven steps and are probably perhaps the prototype of finally the true pyramids that emerge. Step pyramids occur in the third dynasty. The, 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 the very first is a step pyramid in Saqqara, known as the step pyramid complex. Coming back to the small pyramid with Giza, uh, let me situate them for you. There are three that are on the east sides of the Great Pyramid, and there are three that are on the south side of the smaller third pyramid, which is the, the, the one that is offset, the one that kind of clinched the, the Orion correlation map. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, the question has arisen, do they belong to this stellar correlation map? We haven't yet understood their purpose, but they seem to be attached to a, a kind of geometrical pattern that uh, has been analyzed many, many times by other researchers. The ones in the, in the southern side seem to mark a kind of mini version of the larger one the one that correlates Orion's belt. Now, the one that correlates Orion's belt, by the way, correlates when the stars cross the southern meridian, the middle of the sky. Now, again, to briefly explain in case people are listening and are not so familiar with the, with the, with the cycles of the stars, but the star rise in the east, of course, like all the other celestial objects, and culminate or reach their highest point in the south, due south. We call this the meridian. And it is when these three stars are at the meridian in 10,500 BC that they match the pyramid uh, layout on the ground. Now when these stars set in the west, they take the disposition, they're almost parallel to the horizon, they set almost flat to the horizon, and match in a very uncanny way the three little pyramids or step pyramids that are on the south. So it's possible that there is more astronomy to understand on this side. But like I said, I'm not so convinced about this. You know, that's Robert, I was going to ask you actually how you figured out that that the Egyptian civilization went back 10.5 thousand years, and you've just answered that. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Now, when you did your assessment, did you use a computer at all, Robert, to map out the stars going back to that time and the, the alignment? days where I began, I, I think this was one of the primary difficulties and probably why the, the studies were generally ignored by archaeologists and people in the field. Uh, simply because in those days where I started in the early 80s, uh, computers were rather unknown. They were beginning to, to, to come out, if you like. In, uh, and uh, I remember even, even in 83, when I was in Saudi Arabia, we, we just received our first uh, computer in the company I was working with. I mean, it was very, very different days. Oh, completely. And yeah. certainly the software was, was nowhere near uh, available as it is today. Nor the power uh, of the computers either, right? Oh, the power of the computers. I mean, my very first computer was, a, was an Apple IIc. I don't know if some people have that old to remember. But, you know, <laughs> I'm of that vintage, my friend. I do remember I had an IBM 8088, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
it's, your question is very relevant because without a computer to work out the position of stars in the past, each star has to be calculated on what we call the rigorous formula. And it's, it's kind of an elaborate process, uh, even on a, on a calculating machine. And even when you do calculate them, it's very difficult to visualize what you've done simply because you, you don't see the sky and you can slowly map this. It's simply a, a huge exercise. And uh, I, indeed, when I started the idea of this correlation, I, I had to have it checked. I used uh, the help of an astronomer. I was living in Australia at the time. And it took him about a week to work, to work out the position of these three stars with the precision that uh, I required. Today, what happened is that uh, in the process of writing the book, the very first astronomical program came out, which was known as SkyGlobe 3.1, if I remember. And that completely changed the way of studying ancient skies. I mean, it was, it was really incredible. I mean, you, you plonked the, what we call the floppy disk in those days. And with a, with a few instructions, you could see the sky, the virtual sky, but you could see what the ancients saw at any date. As I began to toy around with this program, I began to get very familiar with the, with the sky that the ancient Egyptians looked at. Today, we have uh, wonderful programs. I mean, you can download uh, very sophisticated programs that are available at a rather low cost. Some of them are free, by the way. For your listeners, if they're interested, I use Starry Night Pro, which is a beautiful virtual reality program that uh, gives you the, the sky at any time, any place, anywhere, uh, any direction that you want. In a matter of seconds, for example, for the pyramid, you punch 2500 BC, uh, give the coordinates of Giza, and uh, you say, I want to look east, and bang, <laughs> at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you see what they saw. Program. It's almost 5 o'clock in the morning for you too, my friend. Uh, <laughs> folks, we're speaking with Robert Bouval. He's got a great book out. It's called The Egypt Code. Easy way to get it is always www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover. It'll take you right to a spot where you can download it. Robert's being an incredible trooper tonight, super trooper, as I call him, because indeed it's almost 5 o'clock in the morning. We've had him on the air since 4 o'clock this morning. He's in Spain, folks. That's right, and he's been kind enough. It goes fast. (laughs) I've got a bunch more questions for you. Now, you had mentioned all this alignment with Orion. Now, the question comes to mind right away. Can you see Orion with the naked eye? How were they able? Okay, so you can. Now, the next question I have is... Not only you can see Orion, but you can see the the three stars of Orion's belt and the offset uh, very, very clearly. I mean, uh, there's no need for optical instruments at all. And why would they build it to align with Orion? Why not some other star constellation? Ah, that's what I was hoping to ask. (laughs) That's the mystery question, isn't it? Yes. Now, you know, we live in a world that, uh, I always say this, we live in cities, we live in towns, and we tend to ignore the sky simply because we're uh, preoccupied. And at nighttime, sadly, in many cities, such as Toronto, for example, the light pollution simply obliterates the stars. And it's kind of sad. I mean, I was reading an article not long ago that kids living in cities don't see the stars. (laughs) It's as if they don't exist. Not so, of course, if you live outside cities, and especially if you live in in desert regions throughout the city. Suddenly you realize this amazing landscape that exists right above you. Now, the reason the Egyptians were very taken by this constellation is a geographical quirk of the land of Egypt. Now, Egypt is an elongated country. Mm-hmm. It runs for about a, um, 
uh, a thousand kilometers from north to south, and it's literally a desert. It's a massive desert bisected north to south in the middle by the River Nile. Egypt is the Nile, if you like. It's, uh, it's the Nile with its adjacent fertile valley, and the rest is just desert. So living in Egypt, you are living in what astronomers would call a meridional uh, landscape. It, immediately, you know the direction by being next to the line, you know you're, you're looking north and south. But what brings something to, to the, this land is the cyclical, the cyclical peculiarity that the Nile has. Now, it's very evident for anybody, and, and especially for ancient people who are constantly under the influence of the night sky, to realize that the sky performs a cycle, uh, a yearly cycle. The sun changes position through the year, and the stars rise and set through the night and rise at different times in a cycle of 365 days. This cycle, this, this majestic and very precise to the split-second cycle, indeed, the, the, we tend to forget as well that the wristwatches we wear and the and computers we use that mark time are all simply mimicking the cycles of the stars, the sun. These are the real cycles of our, of our planet. The Egyptians were mystified by the cycles of the Nile in that every year the Nile would flood, it still does, in the summer months it begins to rise, the water begins to rise towards the end of June and by the uh, end of July has spilled over the banks and would irrigate the soil on a yearly cycle, totally, totally uncomprehended by the ancients. In fact, we didn't understand what, what, where the source of the Nile was until the 19th century, uh, when it was discovered by Burton and, and, uh, and other explorers, Speak and Burton, the British explorers. And not only they, they didn't know where the water came from, but they were mystified as to why it flooded, and especially because it flooded during the hot season, in, in the summer months. You would expect it to ebb. did the opposite. The water would rise and, and flood the land. And this flooding was... Uh, this hydraulic, natural hydraulic uh, yearly cycle, irrigated the soil. Egypt was self-fertilized, if you like, every year. Mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah. And uh, it, it, to them, it was a magical uh, event, gift from the gods that, that brought this, this fertility, this uh, rejuvenation of the land. In order to try and explain it, they looked at the sky and they noticed that it occurred in what we call today the time of the summer solstice when the sun reaches its highest point in, in its trajectory in the sky. But they also noticed that before sunrise would appear this constellation of Orion. The stars, again, it's something that sadly people are not aware, but the Egyptians were acutely aware, uh, rise in the same place, but not at the same time. They, they have a slight four-minute shift every day. What happens if you observe a constellation or a group of stars is that you will see it in the sky until one specific time of the year around sunset, just before sunset, the stars that you will observe, such as the stars of Orion, uh, Orion's belt will appear in the west just before sunset and then you come the next day and you don't see them anymore it's as if they've sunk under the earth in the west and they will stay in this invisible state as if they've sunk under the earth for about 70 days and then as if by miracle they would rise appear again in the east just before dawn we call this the heliacal rising the, the dawn rising of the stars and it is this dawn rising that uh, of Orion's belt that occurred just just before the flood would arrive and they made an association they, they began to think that it 
was the stars, the appearance of the stars, the, the, the rebirth of the stars that caused the rebirth of the Nile. So the whole focus was on this constellation of Orion, which, which not surprisingly, created a religious mythology. They associated this uh, constellation to their god of resurrection, Osiris, mm-hmm. and the whole, the whole rituals of rebirth, which they did for their pharaohs, were centered around the cycles of the stars. For example, the 70 days of invisibility were mimicked by the mummification period. We know that they mummified the kings and the process took 70 days. So it's very, very obvious that they somehow believed that the stars could cause resurrection were, were, the, uh, were the trigger, uh, the, the, the magical devices that cause resurrection. So that's the basis of this, this uh, idea, which by the time of the pyramid builders began to be such a full-fledged religion, teller religion, that they attempted to create a kind of heaven on earth where the rituals could be performed. So that's the, uh, the, the, the kind of backbone to this theory, is that one must think in the, in the cosmological religious terms of the, of the ancient builders. And when you think in those terms, it makes perfect sense why they did it. So that's the, the whole umbrella of this of this theory you're listening to night fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host brent holland i see so the pharaohs would think that by being projected out of these this little tiny window yeah. towards Orion, they would be in Orion and therefore would be resurrected. Kind of, sort of. Yes, I mean it may. Uh, you're, yes, you, you, you. I mean the, the pyramids can be said to be. I mean, let, let me say something else, sure. uh, which which also adds supportive evidence for this correlation. Is that they actually gave names to the pyramids, and many of the names they gave are very clearly stellar names. They call certain pyramids the star of this or that pharaoh. It's very clear that this idea is cogently supported by the evidence of the of the uh, of the context. But in the mind, I, I think one of the difficult things that Egyptologists have is that you have to get yourself in the mindset of the builders. You know, thinking today in the terms that we think today in the scientific terms, we, we have difficulty in, in correlating ourselves to ancient people who thought in a very, very different way. Oh, completely. And in the minds of the builders. A good example of that is the fact that the pyramids were built. Folks, they didn't even have the wheel. So imagine the geometric genius of these folks, but there was no use of the wheel. It was before the discovery of the wheel to make the pyramids. So you're quite right. We have to put, we have to empathize with them, put ourselves in their mindset. And that's the trick. I I think it's not just with the ancient Egypt. I mean, any ancient culture you're going to to study. It's very important not just to get oneself in the mindset, but to also be very familiar with uh, what we call observational astronomy, naked eye astronomy, uh, looking without optical instruments. I mean, everybody can do that because these people, these ancient people, were very, very taken by the events in the sky. Not just the Egyptians, but the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Chinese, uh, or ancient cultures, which is very understandable because the sky was a mystery to them and the sky offered a kind of second landscape where the activities of the gods were taking place, where the where the the, the, the whole religious ideologies were, were were manifest. So without that kind of mindset, you're going to have trouble understanding the ancients. Anyway, coming back to the to the pyramid builders, one has to see the pyramids not as tombs. Right? I think placing a label on on them as a tomb completely uh, misguides those who are uh, interested in these monuments because. The Egyptians would have been baffled that we see them as tombs. They would have seen them as 
I suppose using our terms, as resurrection machines, as kind of launching pads to the stars, the, 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 the kind of uh, uh, archaic version of a Cape Canaveral, if you like. And, and to them, they were um, places where, through the magical uh, effect of rituals, uh, one could launch the soul of the pharaoh or the soul of the individual who would, would, would be uh, subjected to the rituals uh, to the stars. So that's how they saw it. And uh, we must get into that mindset to understand them. So this is the battle that I have with Egyptologists is that they uh, they insist on approaching the, um, the, the study of ancient Egypt, particularly the pyramids, um, claiming that uh, they are scientists. Well, the ancient Egyptians were metaphysicists. They were metaphysicians. And one has to think in metaphysical terms to understand them. If you apply science in the way that we understand science, you're just not going to get them. So that's, that's the reason uh, why there is this kind of difficulty in, in understanding ancient Egypt. You know, sir, as you talk, by the way, folks, our guest tonight is Robert Bouval. He's got a terrific book out called The Egypt Code, and that's what we're talking about tonight, if you're just joining us. Uh, the pyramids, of course, that are aligned with Orion. And uh, you're quite right. They were seen as kind of a launching pad, folks. The spirit would be, if you will, launched into Orion, and Orion would come around, and, and they would be resurrected along with that in a metaphysical sense. And that is the key. Easy way to get the book, www.nightfrightshow.com www.nightfrightshow.com and just click on the book cover as always. You're listening to Night Fright Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio The time is now And now your host, Brent Holland When you were talking, Robert, right away I got the impression that everything that they did, the early Egyptians, was to connect spiritually or perhaps live connected to the gods, if you will. And this reminds me right away of First Nations folks here in Canada. They live very connected and everything they do is very connected to God, to stay connected to God. Do you think that could be a possible parallel there, that it was a much more organic way of living? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's um, what you just said should strike a, a note to your listeners in Canada and everywhere in the world, because what is so different from our culture compared to these ancient cultures, even recent ancient cultures such as uh, the New World uh, cultures and but is that they thought in very very different way they, they thought in a sense in a more natural way they saw themselves in a context that was such that everything was sacred to them that's one thing that strikes with the ancient Egyptians is that they saw the land as a manifestation of the divine everything was sacred the Nile was sacred the the animals that lived in the land were sacred the the stones were sacred and they regarded themselves not as the owners of this this uh, gift that they got from the gods but as the protectors the uh, it, would have been, it would have been unconceivable for the ancient Egyptians, for example, to pollute the Nile. Indeed, it was considered the, 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 the highest of crimes to litter or throw, um, throw things in the Nile that didn't belong there, which, of course, sadly is the case today. One has to get into the mindset of 
ancient people that saw everything in a sacred form. And per perhaps, I'm very convinced myself, but that this is the natural way to think. You know, we have detached ourselves from this natural connection. We've, uh, in a sense, unplugged ourselves from the natural world. And it's dangerous because we stop seeing things as sacred. And when we do that, we, we tend to exploit them. We're now in a, in a phase of human development where the planet is a kind of giant quarry, which we're uh, literally eating up. And, you know, it, it's a kind of sad state of affairs that we stop venerating our world and see it as, as a kind of uh, property that we can exploit. So th this is the huge difference between us and the ancients. So studying ancient cultures isn't just for the fun of it. It's to connect again with a time when humans uh, regarded the world in a very different way. And there is something for us to learn, something for us to, to, to revive. It's clear that today we simply cannot pr proceed with this kind of approach on our planet. I, I don't agree. know if I've answered your question. But <laughs> it sure does. Folks, our guest today, Robert Bouval, of course, and I do agree with you, Robert, Robert wholeheartedly, because there is this continuing disconnect that has started many years ago and has continued now. And if we don't get back to where we start valuing the planet, then we are going to continue to devalue it that. And we already see the devaluing going on in human life. Human life, we have the ability, folks, if we wanted to, to feed the world right now, as never before in the history of the world. We have that ability right now, yet disgracefully, disgracefully on our part there are people starving right now and there's no excuse for that anymore and that is something that has to be examined and that is something that has to be dealt with immediately yes yes <laughs> you, you, you see the thing is that we although we're, we're, in, a, we're, in, a, we're in, a, in a world now that has an extraordinary uh, system of communication I mean it's, you know I'm talking to you in Canada <laughs> I'm sitting here in Spain that's unbelievable uh, that's not to mention uh, Skype connections and computers, and uh, it, it's quite amazing that we have blown the communication system to a level where uh, one can communicate with anybody at any time, at any place in the world. But having said this, there's a kind of uh, oblivious attitude to what's happening on this planet. I've had the, the fortune, or perhaps misfortune, I don't know, of having lived in, in many continents. I've, I've lived in Africa for a long time. I was brought up in Egypt and lived there for uh, most of my childhood and teens. I worked in, uh, in Africa and the Middle East uh, throughout my uh, engineering career. I've lived in Australia. I've, uh, I've moved something like 15 countries uh, in, the last, in the last 20 years. The reason I'm saying this is that uh, when you do move around, you do realize the uh, dichotomy and the, and the imbalance that there is on this planet. And uh, you were saying about people starving right now. I mean, there are things going on right now that are frightening that uh, are, are being ignored or simply we turn the blind eye. It's, it's kind of a strange world we live in. I don't want to raise a sense of guilt among your listeners, but what's more important, in my view, is to change the perception of what we have about ourselves and about this planet. We need to do that. And the ancients, in a sense, have a message for us. And that message comes from their legacy by, by understanding what they've left behind. And it doesn't have to be a physical legacy. Uh, there may not be much physical legacy left in Europe, ancient cultures in Canada and in, in America and, and the New World. But the legacy comes in myths, in legends, in stories, in rituals, in traditions. And this legacy 
is always pointing to a veneration of nature. And this is the kind of message that is so important for us to, to highlight and to somehow bring back. So really, this is, uh, is, is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in ancient cultures, is that there seems to be a kind of wisdom there, a kind of nature wisdom that we need to recover. To me, is one of the, uh, the, 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 the critical issues that come from studying ancient cultures. It isn't just mm -hmm. studying history. There is, there is a kind of, there's a kind of treasure, a, a knowledge treasure, a, a wisdom treasure that can be retrieved if we approach it in the right way. I completely agree with you. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, our guest tonight, Robert Bouval, we're talking about ancient Egyptian civilization and the message, the legacy that they left behind in the pyramids. Robert, have you done any study? We're going to have to start to wrap up soon, but uh, final question. Have you done any studies on the ancient South American civilizations? Because indeed, they too utilized the triangular pyramid shape. My uh, co-author, Grant Hancock, has done extensive studies on this and published right. uh, quite a few books on this. I myself have focused very much on the ancient Egyptian culture, but of course I, I'm very familiar with um, the other cultures, uh, particularly the pyramid-building cultures in uh, Mesoamerica and South America and so forth. I am working at the moment with a, an American astrophysicist, Tom Brophy, Thomas Brophy, who is actually at the moment in Santa Fe. He lives in San Diego, but he's actually traveling and in Santa Fe, and he's actually studying a prehistoric site left by the original Indians that has astronomical features. Wow. Uh, there is a lot of these sites, by the way, in, uh, in, uh, in America and Canada, and there is, there is plenty of these uh, locations that demonstrate that the ancients throughout the globe, by the way, used the sky, not just in their rituals, but in placing uh, and aligning their monuments. There is a kind of notion. It comes out in a dictum, which we call the hermetic dictum. Many of your listeners may be familiar with this, which is, as above, so below. Exactly. The yes. The ancients believed correctly that you couldn't exist properly on this planet without connecting yourself to the cosmic environment. You know, we tend to forget that we are cosmic creatures. We belong to a cosmos. We're, we're not simply creatures that, that roam the earth. We're part of a much larger environment. And the ancient had this kind of natural connection to it. They sensed it and they applied it. And by doing so, they, they, in a sense, moved up the scale of awareness. They, they lived the lives in a, in a kind of cosmic context and and that's really what we are i mean we as as modern people with all the technology we have we tend to forget that we belong to a, a much vaster environment that extends not just uh, across our solar system but but way across our galactic system we're parts with galactic people if you like and and the ancients naturally connected to this. So, yes, there are, there are monuments around the world that express the same idea, simply because the ancients had a common denominator. They, they all 
came up with the same internal search and, and it's not surprising that it's expressed in these kind of forms. Where Was there a physical connection? We don't know, but there certainly was a, a psychological or spiritual connection that tied up the whole human race. Do you think, and I have to ask this because the nature of the show and also we're talking about the pyramids, was there any evidence of any extraterrestrial convergence or anything of that sort? Well, some of your listeners may know that I've appeared on a five-part series that was broadcasted uh, a month or so ago on History Channel, which was titled Ancient Alien. I don't know if you've seen it. No, it, it hasn't was, come uh, to Canada yet because there's oh. a History Channel in Canada that's different than, well, if you will, the History Channel in the States. So. Well, uh, I'm we'll sure you're going to get this one because yeah, it was absolutely. very, very popular in the States. It hasn't come to Europe yet, so I, I watched it on Internet. Uh, I appeared on this show with many other researchers. It was Graham Hancock and uh, a variety of others, uh, Robert Chalk. Uh, the show was was masterminded by the bad boy of, of alternative science is uh, the Swiss German Eric von Daniken. Of course, uh, of course. I was just going to say Eric von Daniken, and that's why I asked that question. Yeah, because, well, Eric von Daniken yeah. is a very good friend of mine. Okay, he is indeed. And uh, although Eric, wait, wait, folks, I, I, could I just interrupt you? September twenty second. Eric Van Danigan's sidekick, I can't remember his name right now, will be here discussing his new book. George uh, Chakonis, perhaps. Thank you very much, my friend. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't think of his name right away. away. Yeah. He was the main presenter of the show. George was uh, the presenter of the a Ancient Aliens show. Mm -hmm. It's a five-part series, and it looked at all the uh, possibilities of alien intervention in ancient cultures. Now, I must say that I've been particularly resistant to such an idea, and Eric, who's a very good friend of mine, this. But finally, he persuaded me to come on the show. And the reason I did come on the show is that contrary to the views that we had uh, a few decades ago, where mentioning that idea would, would, would send scientists running a mile, you were quickly branded a dreamer or a charlatan and so forth. That's right. Uh, well, now it's become quite the reverse. Uh, science has come out, if you like, with the ancient <laughs> alien possibility, mainly because through the uh, technology that we have, uh, particularly with Hubble Telescope exploring some outside our uh, atmospheric systems. We've managed to scan our galactic landscape. We are part of a galaxy, as, uh, as uh, you listeners would, would surely know, made up of literally billions of stars. Mm -hmm. We're just a planet next to one star, which is our sun. There are billions upon billions of, of stars within our own galactic system, and there are galaxies galore. There are billions of galaxies, uh, islands of stars floating at incredible distance, uh, making, up the, the, sure. making up the known universe. Now, we've scanned a very small patch of our galaxy, the equivalent of scanning your back garden in relation to the Earth. And lo and behold, in the last seven, eight years, they've picked up 400 planets outside our solar system. Wow. This indicates now to astronomers and uh, cosmologists that there must be billions of planets just within our galactic system. And therefore to imagine now with this knowledge that we're the only planet out of billions of planets within a galactic system that has life or intelligent life is, is kind of uh, an incredible arrogance. I agree. So the possibility now is very, very real. Soon, I'm very sure, uh, as we scan further and further into our galactic system, we are going to find what we've always been looking for and what we've all suspected existed, in spite of the resistance of, of, of scientists, is that there is life out there. Well, and I have to tell you, uh, Robert, in all sincerity, I pray to God that we aren't the only intelligent life form because if this is 
our example of intelligent life form in the universe, we're in trouble. I hope there's somebody out there with a little bit more going for them. Than <laughs> oh, us. let's not be so pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, since you've raised the question, I don't know how much time we have left, but let, let me say this quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ourselves are from the stars. It's a, it's a, it's a cosmological fact. Of course. Uh, four or five billion years ago, a star exploded somewhere in our galactic system, which formed our solar system. We are, like Carl Sagan said, star stuff. We are star stuff become conscious. We belong to the stars. We're made up of stars. Uh, Everything that you see around you, your telephone, your your microphone, every cell in your body is star stuff. This is a, a rather interesting notion because we've arrived at this conclusion scientifically, uh, whereas the ancients arrived at thousands of years ago through another means, a means of knowing, through intuitive knowledge, looking inside. Uh, I think this is the new trend, by the way, of our, 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 uh, our uh, civilization, is that we've stopped looking inside. The knowledge of who we are, the knowledge of where we come from, is embedded in us. We, we, we can retrieve it. Uh, but it requires a different way of thinking. It requires a different way of, of, of understanding the world. And it seems that the ancients had successfully done so. It's very, very obvious as one compares with ancient cultures the way that they perceived themselves and the world, that they looked inside, literally inside themselves. There is that knowledge. The strange thing is that every major scientific discovery was through this approach. Even Einstein admitted that he intuitively had the idea of of uh, the uh, relationship between matter and energy from inside. The discovery of the DNA, by the way, uh, had a, a, an intuitive uh, insight and, and, and came up with, 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 with this knowledge. Marie Curie, everybody. Uh, myself, you know, uh, I had an intuitive idea and, and there you are, it came out. So the connection with the cosmos isn't just a, a, a religious knowledge or religious feeling it is a reality we do come from outside we do come from the cosmos and that the possibility uh, of such a connection in our ancient past is very real uh, I haven't been convinced of the evidence I must admit uh, maybe because I've been a bit blinded and, and, and rather reticent to get involved but there are certain anomalies on this planet left by uh, our ancient cultures that certainly merit attention with this kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the moving of stones, for example. I mean, we, we, we have to deal with, we were talking about the pyramid builders earlier on, we have to deal with people who move 200 block stones. Uh, 15 tons no, each. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with no, uh, no machinery, wheel. with no pulleys, with no, uh, with, with, in fact, with nothing. Uh, this is a bafflement that that uh, archaeologists have not been able to answer, even though they insist they have. I can tell you, I'm a construction engineer, and I have absolutely no idea how to move a 200-ton block w- without the equipment that uh, would be at my disposal today. And even so, I would have to plan it very carefully. So it's this kind of strange anomalies, these kind of peculiar legacy that um, we need to look at. And why not? I mean, why not Absolutely. Uh, look at this possibility? You're listening to Night Fright.
your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. I was told in the Kabbalah, I studied Kabbalah for a while, that it is considered that the Big Bang is like a seed and everything that comes from that seed, that grows from that seed, is intrinsically connected. So if we do find life on another when we do find life out there, they indeed will be our brothers and sisters as well, regardless of what they look like, because we're all intrinsically connected. Well, in that it one might, seed. I, I'm not sure if you uh, you uh, have uh, been aware of this, but uh, a lot of establishments are coming out with this possibility, not just the astronomers and the astrophysicists and the scientists. Uh, there's been some rather awkward, strange and interesting statements coming from the Vatican. Yes, uh, but there always has been. <laughs> no, I'm making fun. Well, I'm making fun. But, well, yes, I mean, yeah. I agree with you, but this particular one is rather interesting because the astronomer of the Vatican has mm-hmm. now openly uh, uh, stated that the, 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 the existence of other uh, intelligent life in other systems is uh, is now... A, um, an acceptable feature of the Vatican belief. Really? So, oh yes. Wow. Look it up on your. Look it up on Google. Okay, uh, I didn't realize uh, that. You've just educated me. Yes, it's rather interesting that the, 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 this this possibility is being considered on 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 on, on such a level, because uh, very clearly, like I like I was saying earlier, the evidence is mounting. Um, uh, the, 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 the knowledge that there are um, planets outside our solar system within such a close vicinity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've explored our backyard and, and lo and behold, we find these planets. Uh, let alone when we'll start looking. Very soon, by the way, uh, our, our technology can, can do that. When we start exploring other parts of our galaxy, uh, there will be life. There is no question in my mind. And the possibility, I mean, if we think that the cosmos, as we know it, has existed for billions of years, uh, something like 15 billion years before our planetary system, the, the universe has been going on for billions of years without us, it would seem totally absurd that uh, civilizations elsewhere have not sprung and gone and sprung again uh, and, uh, and are there for us to find. We have brothers and sisters out there for sure, uh, and uh, we're a bit like the pre-Columbus days. When we simply haven't taken that journey yet to, to connect, but it will come. It will come, and it's an exciting time to be alive, and I've really enjoyed our talk tonight. I want to thank you, Robert Bouval, for having done this research and also for spending the last hour and a half with us. Uh, we've gone a little bit over time tonight, folks, but that's okay. It was well worth it. We've had an exciting guest on tonight, Mr. Robert Bouval. He's got a book out called The Egyptian Code, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a spot where you can get it. Essential reading for all of you interested in this. And there's a message there. And the message is, look to the ancients on how to live today in many aspects. What's next for you, my friend? You've just done your documentary. And um, do you have another book planned? Or what's yes, coming out? I have two books coming out. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the life of, of, of an author. But I've got a book coming out very soon, which is co-authored with Tom Brophy. It's called Black Genesis, and it explores the origins of ancient Egypt, and the title says it all. 
we've uh, detected in the last 30 years a civilization, a prehistoric civilization that uh, existed in the in the Sahara, oh. which now um, most Egyptologists and anthropologists believe are the uh, precursor to the pharaonic civilization. But uh, the, the 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 nice thing about this and the, and, and, the, and the surprise is that they were of black racial origins. Is that These right? Old, wow. Yes, but well, I, you I leave you've got to come back on. You've got to come yeah, back on. We'll do the book later on. <laughs> and I'm, I'm launching a book called The Master Game with Graham Hancock, which will be out also in March. But I'll... Uh, I won't elaborate too much on this because I've taken so much of your time already. No, it's fine. It's fine, my friend. And I do want to thank you for getting up at 4 o'clock a.m. in Spain and spending this time with us. I have greatly appreciated it, and I have learned a lot tonight, as I'm sure the listeners have as well. It was a great pleasure, Bert. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope hopefully you can go back to sleep before you have to get up. Uh, no, I'll start working, though. <laughs> <laughs> thank it's you so okay. much. I, I work in the morning. Okay, thank you very much, and thanks to your guests, and uh, bonsoir to your uh, uh, oh, bonsoir and assalamu alaikum, my friend. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Bye now. Bye. Folks, Mr. Robert Boval, of course, www.nightfrightshow.com. For Joel the Shadow, I'm Brent Holland. See you later. <laughs> Night Fright, and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 